It's Luke chapter 11. It's the Lord's Prayer. We're going to finish it today. Uh, 38 words in Greek in Luke, but an awful lot more in my sermon notes. (laughs) Father, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. We're going to finish it today. And we're going to look a little bit at some of Jesus' other instruction that he gives uh, in this same passage after the prayer. Uh, I was reading this week. had one of those moments where what I was reading in my reading plan also came up in an email uh, from Scott McKnight's blog. And in a random conversation with Linda in a completely different context. But I was reading the Magnificat. Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 and I just noticed something in it that I hadn't seen before hadn't paid attention to in Luke 1 49 as as Mary sings her praises to the Lord she says holy is his name and I thought to myself that sounds awful lot like hallowed be your name and then I thought to myself baby Jesus on mama's lap and he, he taught us how to pray. He taught us this prayer. And I'm wondering how much did the prayers of, of a teenage Mary with Jesus on her lap, how much did her prayers in his childhood, obviously the Magnificat was when she was pregnant, but how much did her prayer life influence his prayer life? And how amazing is it that the Lord of all the universe, as he teaches us to pray, maybe somewhere in the background is the influence of his mother's prayers for him when he says, hallowed be thy name, that he maybe heard it first from her. I mentioned last week how the first part of the prayer is to do with God. Father, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come. And then the second half of the prayer is more to do with us. And I want you to notice something that I'll come back to a wee bit later because this is, I've been dwelling on this myself a fair bit lately and trying to shift how I pray in light of it. This is not only for private prayer. In fact, first and foremost, this is corporate. Notice the words, give us our, <laughs> forgive us our. We also forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. It's not me. It's not I. It's us. It is a corporate prayer in community. And and this is not, you know, I do believe this is the best structure that you can use for private prayer, for your own devotions, your own prayer life. But it is not exclusively for that. It is a community prayer. It should inform how we pray for one another. And how we pray when we are together as well. And it's something I'll come back to a wee bit later. So there are three petitions in this second half of the prayer. The first one is give us each day our daily bread. Got a feel for the the celiacs, you know, (laughs) who can't quite say amen to that one. But Jesus is not only referring to bread. He's using it. It is the most staple food of the human race. It is the most staple requirement that we have for life, our food. Um, There could be subtle references here to Jesus himself in John saying, I am the bread of life after he fed the 5,000. And in that context, people wanted to make him king. 
They saw his provision of bread as a kingdom manifestation and they wanted to make him king in in John 6. So there could be a wee subtle hint towards when we pray, give us this day our daily bread that we're asking for Jesus. We're asking for him. There could be also Jesus referred in the wilderness. He quoted Deuteronomy when he was being tested in, in Matthew 4 and he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the, the prayer for bread might also subtly be a prayer to hear that word of God that nourishes us. Could be. But I think it's more simply a prayer for bread. <laughs> I think it is a prayer for our provision, for what we need to live. Jesus is, is quoting, you may not be aware, but it's a quote from Proverbs. Towards the end, chapter 30, verse 8, the writer says, Give me neither poverty, I don't want to be poor, nor riches, because excessive wealth can have all sorts of, of, sort of difficulties as well as poverty. He says, don't, don't give me either of the extremes, just give me my daily bread. Give me what I need. And I think he's referring to everything that we need for life, not just our food. And the emphasis is on God as our provider. And I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with planning for the future. The context that this was written in, you did your day's work. At the end of your day's work, you got your pay. And on the way home, you bought your food for your family. That's the way life was lived. That was the culture. You didn't get paid monthly or weekly by electronic transaction into your bank account and then have to sort of plan out your month or whatever. It was different. So whenever you pray, give us each day our daily bread, don't translate that into that it's wrong to have a savings account (laughs) or it's wrong to plan financially for your future. That's not what it means. What it means is don't place your trust in such things. Place your trust in God and ask God to give you each day what you need for that day. In the wilderness, this obviously is relating back to the manna that fell every morning. uh, And whenever the, the children of Israel went out in the morning, it was there on the ground like dew on the grass. And they were told, just lift what you need for the day. And then the day before Sabbath, they were to lift two days worth so that they could then not work on the Sabbath. And if they were to hoard it up, if they lifted more than they should have had, it would rot and worms would eat it and they wouldn't be able to eat it the next day. And I think the point is, if they were allowed to gather as much as they wanted, can you imagine what would have happened? They would have started making bigger tents to store it in. They would have started fighting with each other over over what manna they could get. They would probably have started buying and selling it. They would have gone on to full-on Western business mode in terms of trying to acquire as much as they could. God says, no, here it is for today. Here's your daily need. Don't get greedy. I was watching doves this morning we have doves in the garden not nice white doves but the sort of budget variety gray dove known as a collared dove it's got a wee black line around its neck beautiful little bird and uh, i was watching four of them this morning on top of the hen house eating the seed that i put out every day daily seed 
and I was watching one of them who just wasn't eating anything because he was so busy trying to chase the other ones away. Just running around after them, pecking at them and, and calling them names and just being intimidating. And I thought that's what God's people would have done in the wilderness if they were allowed to gather as much as they wanted. They would have ended up fighting about it, worrying about it, hoarding it up, being greedy. And God says, no, just worry about today. Don't even worry about today. Just trust him for today. And in Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus goes on to pretty much immediately afterwards is telling people not to worry. And if we hoard up and hoard up and try to grab everything for ourselves, that leads to anxiety and it leads to worry. And you wonder sometimes, why do we have to pray this at all? If God is such a good and loving Father, why do I have to ask him each day for my daily needs? Surely he should just give them to me. There's a strange interchange between Jesus and a guy called Bartimaeus at the end of Mark chapter 10. The guy's blind and he's begging at the side of the road and everybody knows him and everybody knows he's blind. And Jesus says, bring him over here. And then Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Which seems really weird. It's quite obvious what the guy needs. He needs healed from his blindness. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. There's something really powerful about declaring your needs to God. But not just expecting everything that you need to land, but to actually articulate your needs, to, to actually verbally express your reliance upon him on a daily basis. And also not only to express what you need, but to give thanks for it as well. And it develops intimacy with God. As we, as we see him as our provider and as we come and ask him for the things that we need, it develops intimacy with him. Daily bread, one day at a time. None of us knows. Some of us, we worry about the future and, and as I said, responsible planning is good, but you know, you can get way caught up in it. Way caught up in it. One day at a time. It's not something you just pray once and forget about, but you keep on praying. And, and I want you to understand again that in the prayer, the prayer is not just something that Jesus shot out. The prayer is steeped in the stories of the people of God. This is an Exodus prayer because we have come to an Exodus God. We have come to Father who delivered his children in the Exodus. And as we ask for daily bread, our minds are still in the Exodus, the God who provided for the people that he had set free from their oppressors. It is an Exodus prayer. And from the next part, we're going to see that it is also an exile prayer. These two great moments in the Old Testament, the Exodus when God's people were set free from oppression in Egypt. And then the exile, where because of their sin, they were taken captive into Babylon for 70 years. And as we saw last year, when we looked at that whole episode in the history of God's people, whenever they returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, the exile was not over. And whenever they rebuilt the temple, the exile was not over. And whenever they rebuilt the walls, the exile was not over. Because for the exile to be over, two things had to happen. The presence of God needed to return and be among the people. And sin needed to be forgiven. It was sin that had led to the exile. 
And there needed to be a forgiveness of sins that meant that the exile was over. And you get this in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, these prophets that prophesied to the people who were in exile because of their sins. We belittle sin. We make sin small. We overlook it and we don't think it's that big a deal. And I keep on telling you again and again and again, we need to ponder the magnitude of sin in the eyes of a holy God and the wonder of being forgiven. (laughs) The wonder of it, which we will celebrate once again as, as we eat together today. Isaiah writes in 43.25 about God who blots out transgressions and remembers their sins no more. And when you're in exile because of sin, you need to hear that because you're very aware that your sin has separated you from God, from his presence. And this promise comes that there will be forgiveness for the people. And then the new covenant in Jeremiah, I want to read four verses from the end of Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, again, promised to the people in exile. Here's what what the Lord says through Jeremiah. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And the highlight, the climax, the end of the whole thing, this promised new covenant to the people in exile is, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So when we get to the next line of the Lord's prayer, we're now praying exile prayers. We've prayed Exodus prayers as we've come to Father, as we've remembered the daily provision of bread. And now this is exile praying as we ask for forgiveness. For forgiveness. Jesus did this awesome thing as he went around. He did something that no human being had ever done before. He forgave sin. Sick people were brought to him and he forgave their sins. And it got him into a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. He assured people that their sins were forgiven in a culture where you had to bring a sacrifice and you had to go through a ritual at the temple in order to have forgiveness. Jesus says, no. He says, my child, your sins are forgiven. The exile is over. And when we pray this prayer, we're praying it from that background of the exile of people needing forgiveness. And if it's not a big deal for us, hopefully the Easter season, hopefully a a communion meal today will get us pondering again how big a deal it was for Jesus. I had this moment in assembly on Friday. We had our Easter assembly and uh, I, I wanted to go in and sit among the kids, which is what we're supposed to do. Like, you know, the teachers are the... You know, leadership say, you know, sit, sit in the hall with, with the kids and whatever. 
uh, and Sarah was playing at it and I wanted to be in in the hall not just at the back so I went in and I, and I sat down in the hall you know in the middle beside a couple of year 11 kids and they were showing these videos during the assembly and uh, some of them were just lyric videos for for songs but then they showed a video from a movie of the crucifixion and I was like thinking I really shouldn't have sat here I'm gonna break you know I was struggling I don't know what movie it was I'm not sure exactly which one but it was quite graphic and I was starting to really struggle and I was sitting there with this wee girl beside me thinking I'm gonna have to get up and walk out of here if I'm not careful we need to ponder the magnitude of what Jesus went through not just at Easter but especially at Easter ponder how hateful sin is Jesus at the last supper which we're about to reenact took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and said according to Matthew 26 drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins this new covenant that God's people had been promised in the exile and had longed for and had not been delivered even though they'd come out of Babylon back to Jerusalem the exile was not over because there had not been this widespread forgiveness of sins but now it's come in Jesus and it cost him everything and we frequently just think well I've never done anything that bad <laughs> or, or whatever we, we try to belittle our sin and the fact of the matter is we were all born in sin we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in one way or another all of us God is so holy and perfect that he cannot tolerate sin and because of what Jesus did we are forgiven <laughs> And we can come into his presence. The exile is over. We got to get a biblical understanding of the magnitude of having our sins forgiven. Told you before, but I've trained myself over the years that when we're singing and there's all sorts of things and songs that cause my hands to go up. But one thing that I'll always lay hold of is anything to do with the fact that I am forgiven. <laughs> I'm forgiven just got into the discipline of saying this is so important i'm not going to make this a small thing i'm going to make it a big thing so you don't have to raise your hands don't feel bad if you don't but i'm just saying those are the moments that we teach ourselves and that we really make a declaration this is so important but we still mess up we still get things wrong we still all have those just those whatever those things that we need to bring before God and say I need forgiven again I lost my temper again yeah whatever it is and come and ask for forgiveness it's an ongoing thing and like the daily bread it's a daily the, the old-fashioned preachers would have said keep short accounts with God don't let something linger and linger and linger confess repent and receive his forgiveness but not only that we forgive others we pray that we be that we forgive those that who sin against us and this is the only part of the prayer where we declare that we're going to do something 
or that we are doing something in Luke's version. We also forgive everyone who sins against us. Again, I think we sometimes belittle this. We sort of push it to one side and we think, well, it's not that big a deal. You know, I I give money and I'm a nice person and, and I do this and I do that and I serve in the church and blah, blah, blah. And all these things that we do that we think are important and a lot of them are. But the only thing that's in this prayer that we do is forgive others. And it's the only thing in Matthew's version that Jesus goes on to elaborate after he's finished the prayer. The importance of this is beyond exaggeration. This is non-negotiable. This is essential Christian living, not optional. And every time we pray, we talked last week about these three powerful words, your kingdom come. And I heard these words prayed on Tuesday night and I was loving it. Your kingdom come. Every time we pray those words, your kingdom come, we should feel a wee check in our own spirits. Am I living a kingdom life? Am I living like the kingdom has come? Because if I'm living as the kingdom has come, then I forgive. And if I hold a grudge or I refuse to forgive, then I'm not living like the kingdom has come. And my prayers are a joke. They're a farce. They're a sham. You cannot pray your kingdom come and a couple of lines later say, well, I'll forgive those people, but not those people. We have to forgive. Jesus has a really, really severe parable about this in Matthew 18. One of the most severe parables that he tells about a guy who was forgiven a huge debt and then he went out and he refused to forgive a tiny debt of somebody else. And Jesus' words are severe. <laughs> it's not a wee, come on folks, let's, let's, let's get, get on with this. It, it is it is severe. It is about torture and torment for those who refuse to forgive. God does not hate many things. But in Proverbs 6, there's something that he detests. Verse 18 says there, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And the seventh one, that means that's their way of saying this is the one that he really hates. <laughs> really, really hates. And the seventh one in the list is a person who stirs up conflict in the community or a person in the old language who sows discord among brothers and sisters. God hates that. He hates division, he hates bickering, and he hates fighting. And one of the most important things that we need to do as a community in order to maintain the love and the presence of the Spirit in this place is forgive. You live in close proximity with anyone for a period of time, you will need to forgive them. <laughs> and they will need to forgive you. And it is in that atmosphere of forgiveness that we really demonstrate the kingdom has come, that loving unity. One of the amazing things that Jesus did was he took people who previously were in animosity with each other, who previously were enemies, and he brought them together in Ephesians Two, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. He's made the two groups one, the Jews and the Gentiles. 
He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, the church, out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Again, through the cross. What Jesus did on the cross created a community of people who previously were opposed to one another but now are united. That can't happen without forgiveness. Forgive us our sins for we also forgive those who sin against us. One of the best ways I've heard unforgiveness described is you pour a glass of poison for the person that you're refusing to forgive but then you drink it yourself. Unforgiveness does not do any harm to the person that you are refusing to forgive, but it fills your heart with poison. We must be a forgiving people. And forgiving involves not just, you know, saying, well, I forgive that person, but you wouldn't believe how nasty that person was. <laughs> you, know? you forgive, you leave it, you move on. And it's a daily thing, I believe, as well. And there are times that you might find yourself just having to engage in a daily discipline of saying, you know, I've been grieved by this, but Lord, please, I forgive. Please do not let the bitterness get a hold of my heart. I don't want it. I don't want that toxicity. And it can be a really healing thing. It can really help you to get over something that has been painful in your life, to just get before God and just declare, I forgive. Ephesians, Paul goes on, he says that we're to forgive one another in chapter 4, just as Christ, or in Christ, God forgave us. And in the old versions of, of this, in the King James, it, it actually gives a more accurate translation. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And if you're in, if you're in debt, the thing that you looked forward to in, in that culture was the year of jubilee when debts were cancelled. And Jesus declared in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, jubilee year and the cancelling of debts. So this prayer is an exodus prayer. It's a kingdom prayer. It's an exile prayer. It's a jubilee prayer. 38 words. How does he do it? How does he get so much crammed in? The last thing is, is to, to lead us not into temptation. This takes us to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus said to his followers, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. The Greek word, I don't know what temptation makes you think of. It makes me think of chocolate, cheesecake, <coughs> biscoff. It makes you think of the wee, you know, the wee guilty pleasures that you sort of find it hard to walk past the fridge when you know there's lots of good things in there. I don't think that's got anything to do with this whatsoever. <laughs> and I think the word temptation is really unhelpful here because the word in Greek is about severe testing, trial, tribulation, not just Oh, the kids have half a chocolate bar in the fridge. They wouldn't notice if two squares went missing. That is not what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus asked the disciples to pray about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? It was much bigger than that. 
It was much bigger than that. Severe testing. It might be better to, to, to phrase this, don't bring us into the great trial or the great test. Jesus in Gethsemane is about to go into the great trial and he wants his followers to pray that they don't get sucked into it because it's for him to go into alone, this darkness that he faces, and there to pray that they be delivered from it. Don't bring us into the great trial. And although Luke does not record deliver us from evil, this is spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. I don't do spiritual warfare with mini eggs, all right? We don't do spiritual warfare with cheesecake. We do it with the devil. This is spiritual warfare. This is testing. Because as Jesus was in that garden, facing what was led ahead of him, the forces of darkness were arrayed around him, trying to get him to break. Trying to get him to break. And in all of the tests that we face in life, the forces of darkness will join in trying to get us to break. Trying to get us to crack. 1 Corinthians 10 has the same word in it, this testing word. Every test that comes upon you is normal for human beings. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tested beyond your ability. Along with the testing, he will provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. And I think that's starting to get into the the, the gist of how we pray this part of the Lord's Prayer. It's probably something along the lines of, yes, I'm going to be tested. Yes, it's going to be tough and there will be times that I feel like I'm going to crack. God, please don't let me crack. Please don't let the test be so severe that I crack up under the test, that I break under it. And we see it working out, I think, again in Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope. Listen now that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Talked about this being a community prayer and we're going to finish off in a few minutes with with that thought again. But do we only just pray that we would not crack under the pressure of the test that we would not yield to temptation whatever way you want to put it or do we pray it for others because Paul says it was the prayers of others that helped him through this crushing situation he goes on later in the same letter to say we're hard pressed on every side but not crushed perplexed but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed And I think there's a good way to pray. Father, in the pressure that I face, don't let me be crushed. In the perplexed confusion, don't let me fall into despair. In the persecution, don't abandon me. In the striking, don't let me be destroyed. And even better, in the pressure that someone else is facing in the community of faith, don't let him or her be crushed by it in the striking that's going on in their life, don't let them be destroyed by it because this is how we pray for others. 
and not just ourselves. This is not about chocolate. This is about spiritual protection to be able to withstand the tests that life gives us. Jesus there finishes the prayer, but he has not finished teaching on prayer, which is what the disciples asked him to do. And I want to just quickly go over some of the things that are in the remaining part of this passage. There's sort of two little stories that Jesus tells or illustrations that he gives as he continues teaching them how to pray. One of them is about a friend who comes. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. That's a weird story in our concept because we've got the spar. We've got Tesco and we've got just places that are open all night. And we're unlikely to have to go to a friend to get bread anytime, night or day. But in their context, you traveled on foot or maybe on an animal, horse or mule. You didn't have a car to sleep in at night if, if you were sort of stuck. There was no hotels to go to and there's no shop to buy food. And you relied on the hospitality of others to keep you safe and to provide for you. And it became a crucial obligation in that society that if someone came to your door, a traveler, you were to provide hospitality for them because they had no other option. But you don't have any bread. So you go to your neighbor and you wake him up and you wake his family up to get some bread. And Jesus goes on to say that even though the neighbor will not get get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I want you to see something that I just hadn't noticed before in this. So let's say I'm the, the you there. Suppose you, that, that, that's me, okay? And Aaron comes to me because he needs something. And I don't have it. So I go to my neighbor, who is God in this, and I ask God, not for what I need, but for what Aaron needs. Okay, this is not just a little parable about us going. It is about persistence. It's about audacity. It's about boldness and asking for what we need. But in the context, it's about asking for what our brothers and sisters need. It's about going to God and saying, I have this friend. He needs bread. He needs health. He needs a car. He needs healing in his soul. He needs whatever it may be. And going and laying hold on the Father shamelessly, boldly for each other. (laughs) Don't personalize this to the point that we lose the fact that we're part of a community. We're to pray for each other's needs. Look again at the Lord's Prayer and look at all those us's and ours and we's that are in that second part of it. See how Jesus prayed in the garden For Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to rattle you about through the trials of life, through struggles with relationships, through struggles with finances, through struggles with health, through struggles with disappointment, whatever it may be. He wants to sift you, Peter. And he says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing torture and death. And he's praying 
for Peter. <laughs> awesome. He's laying hold on the Father for Peter in that moment. And Jesus goes on to tell us to ask, to seek, to knock, to keep on asking. He's, telling, he's begging us, go to the Father. The Father's good. The Father wants to give you good things. And as he ends off the passage, he talks about how human fathers, human parents know how to give their children good things. If your son asks for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If he asks for an egg, you're not going to give him a scorpion. You're not going to give him something that's dangerous, that's going to harm him. And if, if we do that, if we as parents who are broken, sinful human beings know how to give good things to our children, how much more will God do that? And here's another thing as we finish to note about the Lord's Prayer that I've never known before. Because Jesus is still, right until the end of 13, he is still teaching on prayer. And he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's another thing that I think should be part of our daily praying. Father, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive others. Protect us from the trial that would cause us to crack. Fill us with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> He's still teaching on prayer. And the thing that he says that your father wants to give you is the Holy Spirit. And this is something that I would say is part of my prayer life. And I would encourage you, if it's not part of yours, to, to, to make it part of it that every day, say, Lord, fill me afresh with the Holy Ghost. Fill me afresh. Give me more of your Spirit deeper into that relationship and that intimacy with you through the Spirit. That's the thing that we are to ask for. There is no better way to pray. There's loads of models for prayer, lots of authors and writers and great sages throughout the centuries, and those are not to be dismissed as being useless by any means, but there's none better than this one. There is no better way to pray. Tom Wright, in his words on this passage, says that this is a prayer for people who are following Jesus on the kingdom journey. Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem to accomplish the exodus in which the long-awaited kingdom of God would become a reality. People would be set free from slavery and oppression, and Jesus would provide bread for the journey. He had already offered the forgiveness of sins, signifying that the exile was over and that the jubilee was dawning, something that he would accomplish completely in his death. And he was demanding that people would forgive others, forgive their enemies as well as one another as they imitated the graciousness of God. And he was also waging war against the powers of evil, a war that would reach its decisive battle on Calvary. This is a prayer that grows out of the mission of Jesus himself. And there's no better way to pray. Because the more you think on it, the more you think about Jesus and what he did and his priorities. And you think about the history of the people of God in exodus and exile and looking for jubilee. You realize that this is where it's at. This is how to pray. And I hope it has encouraged you. I hope it fuels your prayer life more and fuels our prayer corporately more. I know pondering it these last weeks has refreshed my prayer life. Let's be a people who, who pray kingdom prayers the way we were taught 
by Jesus. Father, we thank you for your, your instruction, the simplicity of this prayer, and yet the amazing, profound depth of it. Lord, let us be inspired afresh to seek your face. Reignite a passion within us all for prayer, not only individually, but corporately. Let us not only ask bread for ourselves, but let us ask it for everybody. Let us not only ask for the ability to forgive for ourselves, but for everybody. Let us pray for one another in the testing that we don't crack. Lord, please breathe your spirit afresh into our prayer lives. Stir us and awaken us and cause us to cry out to you with new vigor, with a new old model to frame and to hang our prayers on. Lord, we love you. Come, come Lord, as we worship. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place as we worship, as we sing praises to your name, and as we sit around a table of forgiveness. The very existence of that table and the bread and the wine It's all because of the cross. It's all because of you, Jesus. We are forgiven. May we marvel at it once more. And may we extend that forgiveness to each other. So teach us, Lord, even as we eat, teach us. Teach us more. We love you, Lord. Amen.